Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to The Andy Rowe Show. Why boys will be boys and girls will be girls. Dr. Carol Hooven is a lecturer at the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. In recent years, the gender movement has frustrated experts like Dr. Hooven as it dismisses the science behind the differences between men and women. You're going to hear how testosterone shapes not only our bodies, but our minds, from the womb to adulthood. I hope you enjoy the episode. Before we start, a massive thank you to our sponsor this week, Sons, who helped make this show happen. One in four people suffer from gut health issues like IBS, abdominal pain, gas and bloating. Gut health is vital to your general wellness, with 70% of your immune system located there. It's also linked to mental health, improved sports performance and general well-being. So if you have gut health issues or just looking to optimize your gut health, Sons have the solution. Sun's live bacteria supplement is clinically proven to treat digestive troubles and improve your gut health. I've been using it and I can't speak highly enough of the difference it's made. Check it out at suns.co.uk and use the code ANDY25 to get 25 quid off your first order. Your gut will thank you and you'll also be supporting the podcast and the work we do, which is always much appreciated. Dr. Carol Hooven, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. So I'm really looking forward to, I read your book, Testosterone, very controversial uh, topic, but the beauty of the book is that you go through and you kind of almost use science to debunk a lot of popular theories or, or ways of looking th- at things at the moment, but it's quite a divisive topic, isn't it, testosterone? Yeah, I, it is a divisive topic. I mean, the interesting thing about testosterone is that it does divide us in terms of male and female and to some degree masculinity and femininity, but people are also divided on whether they think testosterone does divide us. So it's definitely a a divisive topic. Well, let's set the scene then. So how did you get to a point where you're writing a book on testosterone? I didn't have a straight shot to Harvard. I wasn't by far a perfect student in high school. I had no idea what I wanted to do when I graduated from college. And I took 10 years after graduating from college to kind of figure out really what I wanted to be when I grew up. I should just say my first application was rejected. I had no field experience. So my, and for other reasons, probably my application was rejected. It's, you know, hard to get into Harvard and I wasn't yet worthy. I don't know if I ever was, but I didn't give up and I reapplied after being offered a job out in Uganda studying wild chimps. So that's what really got me interested in sex differences in behavior because they don't have any human culture, but you see a lot of parallels between the behavior of the males and human males and the behavior of the you know chimp females and human females and the way that we're different. Why testosterone in particular then? What triggered you it's, to go down that track? It's so obvious. I mean, look around. So 
I'm interested in behavior. So I majored in psychology as an undergrad in college. And the parts of behavior I found myself attracted to is mostly the behavior of the opposite sex. Like it's, we're all human, but there's obviously something really different from my point of view about men. And I think that most men think there's something really different about women that they don't quite understand either. So I sort of had this driving need to kind of get at that and explain how that comes about. And even just like, look at how you look (laughs) and how I look and how I'm talking and how you're talking. I have a different voice than you do. Your voice is deeper than mine. You have, I think you tried to shave or shave this morning. Oh, this is um, about three or four days growth. I knew okay. I was having the interview. So yeah, maybe I don't have much testosterone in me. I, I thought, yeah, I need that you five o'clock shadow. Days? I need five days. <laughs> three, about three or four days, yeah. Can you say how old you are? Yeah, I'm 37. 37? Yeah, I'm okay. just not, I just don't, I haven't got any hairs on my chest either. Well, I've got a couple. Oh, but that's interesting. Yeah, you can study, I you can study me if you like. I think. <laughs> okay, no, really? Do you have a little bit, of, you have a little bit of male pattern baldness? A little bit. It's it's going back a little not, bit. So you just have a hair. little bit of receding hairline. Yeah, okay. Bad. Would you like to have a more robust facial hair? Is that something that you would? I reckon want? I've got it. I reckon I've got it pretty good. Like I think, you know, I don't need to shave every single morning. Okay. And and if I if I want to grow some facial hair for an occasion, just so I, you know, it brings out the brings out the jawline a little bit more. Maybe yeah. maybe I'll go. Okay, I've got something on this weekend. I'll give it. I'll give it three days. Oh no, I'll give it four days. I'll give it four days this time. You know. No, that's interesting because it does. The hair does bring out the jawline, and of course, the jaw, the masculinized jaw, is also an effect of testosterone and puberty. The the pronounced brow ridge is another effect of testosterone and puberty, and the facial hair and the receding hairline are actually effects of DHT, which is dihydrotestosterone, which is a derivative of testosterone how do you get on with the media and in particular social media when it comes to delivering the science behind testosterone because there seems to be a tendency now that we're all equal there's no excuse for a man behaving like a man but you are kind of come from the other perspective a little bit where you're almost explaining and some people could see that as excusing some male behaviors because of testosterone yes Okay, exactly. So you said a lot of really important things. And I just, because I'm so irritated, not at you, but at the sentiment that you correctly expressed. And I do, okay, I get emotional. I'm a, I tear up a lot. And this does make me, it makes me angry. And sometimes when I get angry, I I get um, a little teary. So you said, there's no excuse for a man being a man. I'm already doing it. Um, (laughs) Okay, it's embarrassing. So, but anyone who says- Joe Rogan already knows that I do this like 50,000 times. This makes me angry. And it's like an insult to humanity that men need an excuse for being men. There's nothing wrong with being a man. And also in the broader media, there's this idea that, yeah, there's something inherently wrong with masculinity and with just being a man. And I could not disagree with that more. There's nothing inherently wrong with being male. That's just ridiculous. What's wrong, the things that we want to focus on are, is behavior and the consequences of behavior, not the male nature or the masculine nature, which in many ways, you know, is of course absolutely wonderful. And plenty of people love men and men should be able to love themselves and not feel any shame simply for being a man or being a boy. You know, you should feel shame perhaps for some of your actions, right? That's what we want to focus on. So that's like thing number one. 
there's tons of overlap in behavior. It's not that all males are like this and all females are like that. So the fear is that scientific information like that will be used by some nefarious people or just the patriarchy to maintain the status quo where men have more power than women and will be used to subjugate women or that women will internalize these messages and think that they just that they can't be the president of X corporation or that they somehow you know asked for it when it comes to sexual assault all that stuff is completely wrong these are based on errors of reasoning just because something exists in nature that does not mean that it's right or good or valid that's called the naturalistic fallacy the idea that what is found in nature is justified that's just Mm. wrong right there's there's plenty of things that are natural that are horrible and we all know that that's true and the second thing is that the idea of biological determinism that if um we get that science out there people are going to think that we can't change we're just stuck with it we're stuck with the worst aspects say of male behavior which are extremes of male behavior not like normal male behavior in the middle where like i don't know if you have you ever been in a bar fight i have been in a bar fight i didn't win i wouldn't recommend it Okay, so I haven't looked into cross-cultural differences in bar fights specifically. In terms of killing and raping, et cetera, most men are not doing that, right? Those are extremes of male behavior on the tail end of kind of the worst aspects of male behavior. Mm. There's also another end, which is awesome, physically heroic male behavior, saving the life, putting your own life on the line to help people you don't know in a way that puts you yet physically at risk. Men are much more likely to do that than women are. But the idea, just back to this other myth that causes people to resist uh, biological explanations, is that if something is biological, it's just going to be expressed. So think of, I guess you don't have any kids right now, but if that's on the, is that on the horizon? It's on the horizon, yeah, maybe. Okay. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Sorry, I, you know, I shouldn't really ask. No, but, you can ask. Uh, you can ask whatever you like. Okay. So... Hopefully you're going to raise a kid who, when they're five years old and you go out to dinner, you can take the kid and they're not going to, you know, throw food and run around the restaurant screaming. Right. Mm. So the tendency to do that, the predisposition to, for a five-year-old kid to behave in that kind of out of control way is higher than it is in like you and me in adults. Cause our prefrontal cortex, for instance, is much more substantially developed so we can regulate our behavior and that's a biological mechanism, we can regulate our behavior better than a five-year-old. However, just because there's a biological genetic predisposition for that kid to just do what it wants, he or she wants to do, which is go, you know, and throw food and stuff, your rules, the way that you raise that kid, the rules of the restaurant, the religion that the kid is, the country that they come from, whatever, all that stuff is going to shape the behavior of that child. That's just one clear example. But of course, men aren't raping and murdering at high rates all over the world. There are very strong cultural differences in the rates of extreme forms of male violence, say, like in Singapore, super, super low. You're probably incredibly safe in Singapore, leaving your purse on a bench or something. Um, I went to Taiwan and everyone told me you could, I felt that I felt totally safe walking around with my, at that time, I think five-year-old and Everyone was very friendly. I didn't feel threatened at all because mm -hmm. the, the customs and laws are different. My long-winded point is that those 
fears are based on myths. And what we have to do is not give in to people who give in to those fears. We have to be better science educators and better logicians and teaching students how to think critically and analyze science. And instead of trying to make people feel better and make the world a better place by pretending that the truth is something, you know, by covering up the truth, right? Or by twisting the science, which is saying, no, we're all exactly the same biologically. Therefore, we can have hope for total sex equality. We can have hope for sex equality anyway. You know, you don't need to, and what are we going to do? Just like abolish the patriarchy? That's not so easy either, right? Yeah, it's a big, that's a big ask. Obviously, like when a, when a, a child is born and, and they're a male and if, if they've got, you know, testosterone, it's going to affect their physical development. Yes. How does it affect their mental development? Like, does it? Is there something that testosterone does to the brain? As a baby, when a baby comes out, are they a blank slate, or have they developed something through being a boy or through being a girl because of the amount of testosterone they get? Yeah. So that's a really good question, and I'm going to start by just talking about rats, fellow mammals, and boy male rats like to engage in rough and tumble play. There's tons of studies on rats showing that males have much, first of all, much higher testosterone in utero than females. Females don't need any hormones to develop their reproductive structures and to show female typical behavior as adults. They don't need any special hormones in utero. Males have testes. They produce very high levels of testosterone. And if they don't have that, they won't develop male reproductive structures, you know, like a, a penis and the associated internal plumbing. But it also shapes their brain in various ways. And we know that there's one part of the brain called the sexually dimorphic nucleus of the preoptic area that plays a large role in sexual behavior. And testosterone increases the size of that nucleus. And when that part of the brain is masculinized, the male little kid rats, the juveniles like to do this boxing thing. So they get up on their hind legs and they box each other. And it looks like they're having fun. They're not really trying to hurt each other. They're just messing around, but it's actual boxing sort of like you would see, it reminds me of what my son is doing less and less now that he's 12, but you know, kind of boxing his friends, try to tackle them and pin mm. them down. Female animals tend not to do that kind of play. So we know that when you manipulate the early testosterone environment, you can manipulate those very early sex differences in behavior. You can create a male who plays like a female, which is much lower frequency and much less uh, physical by just blocking his testosterone in utero. So that's non-human animals. So we can't just fiddle around with the testosterone levels in humans in utero. So that's the important time for brain organization is around birth. So it's during gestation. And then in humans, there's also a few, a three month period after birth in males specifically where testosterone levels rise to pubertal levels. So we know that the testosterone levels in utero have permanent effects on the brain and behavior. And it seems that the testosterone levels after birth are further masculinizing the reproductive structures. There's some evidence that penis growth is happening during that time. And there also may be effects on the brain. But what we see is that in girls, in female 
fetuses who are exposed to unusually high levels of testosterone, those girls are masculinized in their play. So they are more likely than typical girls to want to play like the boys and with the boys and with toys that boys prefer, like trucks and planes and things that move instead of more social play, sort of talking one-on-one, having more sort of typically feminine interests. Uh, So we know that there's a role for testosterone in humans that masculinizes behavior from these atypical cases where especially girls have higher levels than normal. And there's some cases where boys have lower testosterone than normal also. And these differences persist into adulthood. So if a, if a female fetus is exposed to high levels of testosterone, she is more likely to grow up to be a lesbian and to have male typical career preferences, like working with things more than people. So that, that's another sex difference that seems to have something to do with testosterone. If you had a boy and um, you put in front of him a Barbie doll and a, or girls' toys or guys' toys. Um, yeah. For, you know, I mean, I might get in trouble for generalizing there, but if you no, put- No, generalize. And just we'll qualify everything with on yeah. average and there's lots of overlap. And exactly. these are just patterns. These are broad patterns. Yeah. If you, is that, because there, there'll be an argument that that's, that they're a product of their environment. So- Yes. So yes. You, but but the I guess the argument the other way is saying if you put the same set of toys in front of a guy and a girl, the guy and the girl are going to go towards their more gender-specific toys for want of a better, better term. Yeah, so there's some interesting research there. And um, so first of all, of course, it's on average. There are plenty of boys, especially boys who grow up to be gay, are more likely to prefer female-typical toys and female-typical play patterns and want to play with and dress like even the girls. And those boys aren't being socialized into those choices, that's for sure. In fact, many of them are bullied by their own families or friends for showing those kinds of behaviors. So kids have natures and they will express them, even if they're people are trying to shame them into not expressing them. You know, we have our natures, parents and culture. I think the evidence shows do not make a massive difference. Boys police each other's behavior much more strongly than girls do. Socially, I think it's acceptable for girls to be like boys because men have the power in this world. So girls are encouraged sometimes to be more masculine. You know, as we see with all these books about girls being fierce and tough, right? They're Mm. encouraged to be masculine. They're allowed to play with boys' toys. It's not seen as weak, right? But for boys, there is social stigma from family, friends, caregivers to playing with girls or with girls' toys. Is there science behind what you write in your book about gay men being more likely than straight men to be hairdressers or flight attendants and and likewise lesbian women more, more likely to be mechanics than straight women yeah so again these are stereotypes that have some some uh evidentiary basis right so there's it's not true again i just want to make this clear that you know all gay men like more female typical professions or all lesbians are interested in more male male typical professions. It's just that in these groups, there is a deviation from what we see that typifies their sex. So there's their over-representation of gay men in, you know, as flight attendants or as hairdressers or interior decorators. Like that's all true. And that's something that is interesting. And we could try to 
understand. But of course, there's plenty of gay men who are, you know, football players or CEOs mm. or whatever. And, and same thing with um, lesbians. So what's interesting from my point of view about homosexuality, for one thing, is that especially in men, the sexual nature is 100% masculine. It's just that the target of attraction is different. But gay men have a full-on typical male sexual behavior that can be expressed with more freedom because they don't have women putting the, you know, eh, putting the limits on to sex, right? So right. that if you're all men together having sex, they're going to do what they're going to be able to express their desires in the way they want because they're all pretty much on the same page, which is not the same page that women are on. So in the among lesbians, like lesbian sexual culture is completely different than gay male sexual culture in predictable ways. And that needs to be explained. Those aren't social influences. Those aren't, that's not like the patriarchy sort of telling gay men and lesbians how to behave. They're just expressing their sexuality in, in, a, in a freer way with their own sex. What's interesting is that to me, that says that it might not be a testosterone difference in gay men. We don't necessarily need to assume that because some aspects of behavior are feminized, that it means that there are differences like reductions in testosterone at sort of critical periods of development, like in utero or in puberty. There may be some differences, but there's zero evidence. Gay men have just as much testosterone as um, heterosexual men, as far as we can tell, at every stage. So there are just no differences there. There's also some evidence in females in terms of explaining lesbianism for the 2D40 ratio, um, which is the ratio of the- The digit ratio. Yeah, I did I did this with my fiance just to make sure that she didn't have more testosterone than me the other day. Okay, not, so not that I, there was any question uh, that she might have, but do you want to talk you, through that and talk through the science? Well, yeah, do you see what I have going on here? Oh God, you are testosterone I'm heavy. I'm like a, a guy lesbian or something. So I'm actually more masculine than most men. You're more masculine like I, than me looking at you. No, I know. Yeah. I It's weird. So this is the, called the, the 2D40 ratio. Yeah, let's just explain what that is and what we're looking at. And it's a extremely loose, I think somewhat unreliable measure of relative testosterone levels in utero. So what I have as a female is a hypermasculine 2D40 because my index finger is so much shorter than my ring finger. And interestingly, I don't have it on the other hand. Most people don't have, right. you think it's symmetrical. If you just look at the distance from your bottom wrinkle, you can measure this and measure to the top of your finger. You're looking at the ratio from this to this. And that is this very loose index of the amount of testosterone that you were exposed to in utero. This is true in non-human animals also. So, so what we're looking at here is if you, if you hold your, if you hold your hand up, if, if you're listening to this, if you hold your hand up, if you're the 2d 40 is the, the difference between your ring finger, the length of your ring finger and your index yeah. finger. And the yeah. bigger that gap, if your index finger is shorter, it's more masculine. What, what I have is, is very masculine. Most women will have the index finger being the same as or slightly longer than the, the ring finger. Right. And there's supposed to be a bunch of traits that can be predicted. Again, I'm skeptical of this literature, but it's very popular because it's like, finally, you can have some physical feature mm. that might 
give us some idea of how masculinized you are, you know, that of, of an actual hormone in utero that had a permanent effect. So people are very excited about this. There's a lot of studies that measure this and the ones that find a positive result are the ones that are published, but the, you know, that might be like 50 of those never got submitted to the journal, or if they were submitted, they were rejected because people are like, who cares? You didn't find anything. That's called the file drawer effect, but there is a literature and it does show these patterns. And it does show that lesbians have more masculinized 2D 40s on average. Not every study finds that, but many of them do. And that, you know, so there might be something there because also it's consistent with this congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Testosterone helps men when it comes to being competitive, whether it's whatever situation they're in, doesn't it? So women are fiercely competitive, if you think about it, in terms of social high, you know, they, they are also interested in hierarchy, but they compete in less direct, you know, face-to-face confrontational goal-oriented ways. So when men are competing, they, yes, men are very driven to compete for status, but they're, they tend to do it in more direct to me kind of a cleaner what there's there's like a, a status challenge there's a you know somewhat of a conflict there's a challenge there's some kind of a fight whether it's physical or not there is a way to resolve that status discrepancy right, right. you might just be getting in somebody's face you might beat them in sports you might outcompete them at work but it's clear who won and it's over and status is resolved and now you know who's dominant and then you play that game and the subordinate one has to kind of behave that way. And the dominant one behaves that way. Females, women and, and um, older girls tend not to have those same strategies and rules. And there's a lot of, you know, backstabbing, basically gossiping in a way that seems cr- cruel to me that is intensely competitive. And it's to sometimes ruin the reputation of another girl and now we have, or, or young woman or women, you know, in social media, we see this all over the place. So that's called passive or indirect aggression. So females are perfectly capable of being incredibly competitive with other girls. And they're also obviously super competitive in many, many other ways. It just, diff- the format differs of that competition. It seems not to be on average as sort of intensely goal-oriented as male competition, or maybe even as intense overall, on average, again. So again, I'm not totally willing to ascribe that to testosterone. I would say the physical part, if there's physical competition, there is good evidence that that's related to testosterone. And there's indirect evidence that this obsession with um, social status is also has something to do with testosterone. But the evidence there just is not as robust as in, is, as in sex and Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Physical aggression. I want to talk about athletics as well. There's plenty of oh, competition yeah. and plenty of debate about that, uh, especially at the moment. It's quite, it's quite topical, especially with men transitioning to women and competing mm-hmm. in women events. What are your opening thoughts on that? 
Yeah, my thoughts are number one. So we'll just take Laurel Hubbard, and you must be interested in that. Because yeah. From- so so Laurel Hubbard is the is the Kiwi weightlifter, New Zealand weightlifter, who yeah. um, set all sorts of records competing as a man, and then transitioned to a female, and is now competing at the Tokyo Olympics in the female yeah. category as a weightlifter. Did you want to say how you feel about it or no? Yeah, I will actually. I I don't think it's fair. Like, I definitely don't think it's fair. I think, uh, I'm I'm not a scientist, but I think if you compete as a man and in an event that can give you a physical advantage over a female, I don't think it's fair for the females that are in that event. If if you've trained all your life and you're a female and you're competing against a female that's transitioned from a man that has been competing as a man for most of his life, she is going to have, Laurel is going to have a physical advantage over the females. Um, Purely because of that testosterone and that she would have lifted heavy weights in the past. And I, I guess you'll probably get into it. The, the bone density and um, is another factor with, with testosterone yeah. that you just don't lose. Yeah, good. Okay, so I'm glad you said that. A lot of people are afraid to say what you just said, but most people, as far as I can tell, most people agree with you. Yeah, I think it's important to... to make it clear that there's nothing against Laurel Hubbard and there's nothing against um, females that or males that transition into either sex. But what I do have a problem with is that, you know, it, that having a, a, if there is an unfair advantage over a female in any physically related event, I think that's unfair. Okay, so the issue is, there's no question that there's an advantage. And I can talk about why in just a second. There's definitely, on average, a physical advantage um, if you've gone through male puberty. Like, everyone knows that. People are challenging the idea that it, it's common sense and saying, well, the science doesn't support it. No, it's common sense. Everyone can see it. Everybody knows it. And they're right because it's true. You know, you, if you go through male puberty, you gain a huge advantage and those advantages don't all go away. But that, to me, doesn't, mean unfair we have we have to decide what unfair is right so advantage yes the other thing i just want to make clear is people are irritated at laurel hubbard but that's not where i don't think they should be directing their anger towards laurel hubbard she's just following the rules she's somebody who identifies as female loves the sport wants to participate in the female category and IOC is like, yay, you know, go for it. This is totally allowed and you can have a testosterone level that is way out above the normal, typical female range. But her supposedly her level is actually significantly lower than 10 nanograms per milliliter. The, you know, high end of the female range is in like the high twos, not the tens. That's like approaching the low end of the male range. But the fact is that puberty does what you think it does. Like you went through it, you know why you're bigger and stronger than I am by a mile, right? And just to put this in an evolutionary point of view, of course you're larger and have more muscle mass and a deeper voice and facial hair because these are traits that are designed in male animals to help them compete and use the sperm that the testosterone is also helping to produce. So testosterone, you need that for sperm production but your sperm's not going to go anywhere if you're not able to, comp- I mean, it, you can go out into the world if you know, you're know you pleasuring yourself, whatever. So, <laughs> but it's not, you're not going to impregnate anybody if you're not able, if you don't develop the mental, the psychological and physical traits that allow you to, to use the sperm for 
actual reproduction. And that means you need to be larger and stronger and have more power for various reasons for reproduction, right? So that's why those traits develop. Boys have a very small advantage in some uh, athletic abilities, especially for throwing, they do have an advantage even a little bit prior to puberty. But really many, many girls could beat many, many boys in all kinds of sports before um, puberty, like really before the age of 10. And you can have you know, um, mixed sex teams and you'll still have some interesting results there. But then when testosterone starts going up is when you start seeing um, a divergence in those abilities. And that is because first of all, hemoglobin is about twice as high. I think it's twice as high in males as it is in females. And hemoglobin is really important in terms of powering muscle and um, aerobic power and providing the larger muscle mass that males have with what they need to power their athleticism essentially. So testosterone biases energy to be used, deposited as muscle rather than fat, right? So women need more fat because they have to draw on that for uh, during gestation and lactation. So they have twice as much fat as men. Men have twice as much muscle and significantly more lean body mass. That's everything besides fat. Fat does not help women in sports. Unless you're talking about swimming, like long distance swimming, then there's some uh, advantage of having body fat there. But for almost all sports, having twice as much fat is just dead weight that you have to carry around with less muscle. There's, so even if everything else were equal, like if bone strength, body size, hemoglobin, if you have twice as much fat, on average as your competitors, you're not going to be um, faster or stronger, right? The one with less fat and more muscle is gonna almost always win. So then you also have the increased body size and, you, and testosterone also increases bone density in puberty and that doesn't go away. So there's longer, stronger bones there is twice as much muscle mass. There is, four, I think it's 43% uh, stronger upper body mass. When somebody blocks testosterone after going through a masculinizing puberty. So, that, that, so you have these significant strength and speed advantages that open up in puberty. And the sports with the smallest sex difference in terms of the male advantage are uh, track and field sports. And that's like 10 to 12 it depends on the sport, but that's the lowest advantage. You can get up to 50% male advantage on average, depending on the amount of power and upper body strength, basically, uh, that's involved. So there's massive male advantages for all of these reasons. So people might argue, well, trans women, when they take estrogen and block testosterone, lose those advantages. So it's fair. No, it's not. And they don't lose. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not fair. I'm saying they don't lose those advantages. Um, even so after a year of blocking testosterone, muscle mass declines in a trans woman, some, something like on average 5%. So if there's a 40% advantage in males and females and, uh, typical, you know, men and women, and you're only losing five to even 10% of that muscle mass, you're still going to retain a huge advantage. You also have stronger bones. You also have larger body size. 
the grips, there's huge advantages in grip strength that don't disappear by a long shot after blocking testosterone. Even if testosterone is blocked, the studies have shown for up to eight years, nobody goes all the way back down to typical female levels. For one reason, the body size is larger and there's just more muscle mass altogether, but it is the differentiation of stem cells in puberty towards muscle that isn't erased. So there's always going to be on average, higher level of muscle in people born male, even if they block their uh, testosterone and the bone strength is also retained. That to me doesn't decide the issue. There's human rights issues that needs to, that need to be discussed, but they should be in light of the science, not, you know, we need to stop this arguing about whether trans women who've gone through male puberty have an athletic advantage on average. They do. End of story. It's obvious. Like there's so much literature on that. Um, there should be other issues that we now listen to with an open mind. I mean, so, cause nobody, cause we're, we're arguing about the testosterone so much. Nobody's really hearing the best possible case from the other side and listening with an open mind because people are so irritated that they're basically being lied to that. They're just like, it's case closed. They, they do have an advantage, but there is another side to this that people aren't hearing. So we've talked about the, the, the physical side of when someone transitions um, from male to female, what about the impact testosterone has, you talk about it in your book on how a female's mind changes when they transition to a male uh, with their views of the opposite sex. This is something I wish that I could do, but I don't have gender dysphoria and I don't want to grow a beard and have muscles and hair on my chest. You're missing out. I know. No, I know. Like I, I, part of my, I'm trying to get as close to that as I can. You know, what is it like to be a man? What challenges would I be facing and how would I feel? And what is it like? So the trans men who are going from female to male get to experience that, you know, they're already obviously feel more masculine probably than I do. But so the point is, if you're a person born female, and you cross the testosterone line and you start taking male levels of testosterone and you block your estrogen. It's really blocked naturally when you take that uh, high levels of testosterone. What seems to happen is a whole new world of awareness opens up. And it's like going through a male puberty because you're going from like basically no testosterone to a very high level of testosterone and everything changes. The way you view the world, your priorities, your urges, change. Obviously, sex is the big thing. That's what the most robust findings are in the literature about the most pronounced effects. There's also effects on emotion and orgasm and obviously, you know, physical traits. But these changes, these psychological changes happen before the really pronounced uh, physical changes, which can take some time to kick in. And what people describe is being overwhelmed by thoughts of sex. And feeling that it's more of a goal or an urgency that needs to be like an urgent need that needs to be addressed in a way that it's really not for women. And there's even some objectifying of the sex that they're attracted to as sexual objects. And so for someone who was born female and maybe raised female or even lived as a woman for a while after puberty, this can be a disturbing revelation. Like having gone from not wanting to be objectified as a woman to feeling the urge to do that, 
to people they're attracted to. But overall to have a kind of, in the first couple years, right? Like when you're in sort of that puberty stage, it can be very, as you could probably testify to, an overwhelming kind of like preoccupation with sex. So for some trans men, this is just a window into male psychology and a new understanding of what males are dealing with. That it's not that they're being assholes, is that just this is what they're going through mm. and they have to learn how to manage it. And women do not understand that men are having, especially you know, younger men, have a struggle. They have facing, feeling very strong urges and really having to learn how to navigate how they act on those urges in ways that are not disturbing to the sex that they're attracted to, especially to women who tend not to feel the same thing. It's not that women aren't you know, horny and like super horny, even in puberty, but it's of a different quality. And this, so we know this now from people who've gone through gender transitions and also men who have to block their testosterone because maybe they have prostate cancer and, and can exacerbate the, the cancer if their testes are producing high levels of testosterone. So when treatment is to block androgens and these men say that their sex drives just really completely plummet. So we know that testosterone has a huge amount to do with sex drive and also especially people born male who transition to living as females have the opposite effect. They feel freed from this preoccupation with sex. And while they still have a sex drive, it's much, much different. It's much more mellow. There's more motion involved. And the interesting, one thing I thought was really interesting is that the orgasms off of testosterone are more like what typical women describe, which is more of a full body experience that is kind of drawn out. And that the, or the sort of male typical orgasms are more focused on the genitalia, more intense at the peak, but shorter in nature. And then it's like over. And for women, it's like, ah, oh, la la la, you're kind of languishing in the, I don't know if languishing is the right word. You're, it's kind of long lasting and it's like a warm bath for a while or something. Right. And not like that for men and not like that for people born female who take testosterone as part of a transition. They then start having the shorter, kind of more intense, but time limited um, orgasm. Can you tell me about the Coolidge effect and how that affects humans? Yeah, so I'm not telling the joke because I'm terrible at it, but the Coolidge effect is the phenomenon where male animals will become sexually exhausted and basically lack sexual motivation and, and unable to ejaculate after mating with the same female several times. And so this is well-documented in rats, it's well-documented in other species, and it has to do with dopamine. So it turns out that recent exposure to male typical levels of testosterone condition a dopamine response in the right kind of environment in response to female sexual stimuli, like other females who are in estrus. If males encounter those females and they smell them and they can tell they're in estrus, then dopamine will go up as long as they have or have had recently had male levels of testosterone. So when dopamine goes up, that motivates the animal to pursue the female and to mate and to, to be able to mate, to coordinate the necessary body movements that are you know quite complicated actually. So if he mates with her several times, he will no longer get that dopamine response and he will be sexually exhausted. 
And it seems like he's got nothing left in the tank. However, if you present him with a new female, up goes dopamine and his motivation comes back. He's able to ejaculate. That's the Coolidge effect. The idea that sexual motivation and capacity, like ejaculatory capacity, is reinvigorated in the presence of a novel female. So this is sex, so new females are sexually exciting to males in a way that they may not be to females. And the reason is, of course, that if females are getting pregnant from you know, one mating, it's not necessarily adaptive for them to pursue additional matings after that. Whereas males, you know, theoretically can benefit from pursuing additional mates, but they're not going to benefit from unless they're in a monogamous species, you know, they're not going to benefit from continuing to mate with the same female. If she's going to have gotten pregnant, she will have already, and it's time to move on. So the stimuli of a new female, like new smells, new sights is very sexually attractive to a male, even if he's just been having a lot of sex. And there is evidence that this is present in humans. One thing is the differences in response to pornography. So you can measure a male's sexual excitement by basically measuring the circumference of his penis with the penile plethysmograph as he's which is the little ring that goes around the penis. He will become more excited when the actors change in a scene. And okay. that, so it's that novelty that seems to be exciting. You kind of just get sick of the same, I hate to say this, but of the same female in pornography. And if there's a new female, that's like, wow, new stimuli, that's actually exciting. And there are you know, good reasons for that. And that doesn't seem to be the case for women who watch pornography. It's not the uh, changing up of the actors that's sexually exciting. What is the main misconception that you think that people should know about testosterone? Yeah, I think the main misconception is, and the testosterone skeptics use this to sort of argue against the idea that testosterone gives men an athletic advantage or that testosterone has to do really explain sex differences in a lot of behaviors. It's the perception that men with more testosterone have a higher libido or are more aggressive than men with lower testosterone, that high testosterone is always good. And as long as you're in the healthy, normal range, you can move your testosterone all over the place and it doesn't affect libido or aggression. So that's very clear in humans and in non-human animals. Even it might not affect uh, athletic ability. It depends on the sport. Testosterone does put on muscle mass. So if you increase your testosterone, you are likely to um, increase your muscle mass, even if you're not working out. But that's if you increase it um, exogenously from the outside. But differences among men really don't predict much within the uh, typical range. So people will say, well, oh, because there's no relationship between testosterone level and marathon times, that means that testosterone just doesn't have an effect on sports. That is such a load of crap that, of course, doesn't mean that the sex difference in the, the huge whopping difference in testosterone levels and the effects of male puberty and the effects of male levels of testosterone on muscle and strength um, don't make a difference. That They make all the difference in the world. But it's just that the differences among men in testosterone don't seem to explain differences in like personality or libido, et cetera. So you could be a guy on the lower end of the T level and have a you know super strong libido or be very competitive. Mm. Um, what does seem to matter are testosterone changes 
that are elicited by social interactions. So when you are in a competitive or threatening situation, the way that you respond to that with kind of fear and anxiety or dominance and you know, wanting to kind of confront your challenger, that might elicit testosterone changes, either going up and staying high if you kind of win that or emerge as dominant in that interaction or going down and staying low if you're the person who kind of runs away from threat or sort of shrinks in the face of threat. Those changes seem to condition future behavior so that males behave in adaptive ways in the face of threat. If you're a strong, tough guy or a guy who has amazing social skills, whatever it is that gets you status in a given environment, you want to be rewarded for that, for confronting a challenge to status. And testosterone can upregulate dopamine and reward certain behaviors. On the flip side of that, if your testosterone is going down and you might have a cortisol increase, which is associated with stress, that might kind of condition you to respond in the future to similar situations with a kind of fleeing so that you don't get hurt or you don't die. You want to live to reproduce and try again, mm. you know, next week or next month or next year. That's the short-term changes in my view that are really, really important and less important are individual differences within the normal range. I've heard that the man flu is generated. I don't know. You never heard of man flu. So, so a guy will get sick when they get the common cold and a female, if they get the same cold, won't be as sick. Is the guy not just not complaining more? Well, I thought I've heard that it's because of testosterone and the, and that a cold or a disease like that would, that the, that the common cold attacks testosterone more than any other thing. Is there any? Well, I do know that immune system activation does depress testosterone. Chronic illness depresses testosterone, stress depresses testosterone. So the cortisol, when cortisol, which is associated with stress to make energy available during times of physical or mental stress goes up, it does inhibit the signal from the brain that is sent to the testes to produce testosterone. Because you can't have energetically for animals, you can't have immune system action and high testosterone because testosterone is expensive. Putting on muscle is incredibly energetically expensive. So if you need extra energy just to survive, then you tamp down all your reproductive function and you amp up immune system. So there is a direct response there. So maybe that's what you're talking about. So the man flu is real. Thanks. That's all, that's all I needed to know. That's okay. all. Now, now I can win joy. Like if you want to learn more about the science and facts around the way we are, the way we are, make sure you get hold of Carol's new book, Testosterone, the story of the hormone that dominates and divides us. Thank you so much. Thank you this so much fun. for coming on the show.